What's up, beautiful people? It is your girl, Amber Jones, and we are back for episode two of season two of the revival, Faith, Justice, and Culture for the Now Generation. I am so excited to start our Revive the Vote series. So we talked about at our season two premiere, how we're kicking off this season, focusing on midterm election season. And I'm so incredibly excited to bring to you a litany of guests on the podcast who are doing some really faithful, impactful work in our political climate and organizing, just in all the things. And they're Black and they're Christian. And so we are so excited for our first episode today. I am bringing onto the show one of my dear friends, one of my brothers, um, and someone who just has such a strong commitment to the work that he's doing on behalf of the public. And he leads with optimism and joy in his heart. So I'm excited to bring to you Ron Harris. Um, He has been working for the city of Minneapolis uh, for the last six years or so, but he has had over a decade's worth of experience in politics. He's worked for a litany of elected officials. Um, He also serves at the national level for the Democratic National Committee as a caucus chair. He's my fraternity brother. Uh, He is just all around awesome, and I greatly appreciated the opportunity to sit down with him and have the kind of conversation that we're going to have on the show today, which is really talking about what's at stake here. He's given us some really high-level political analysis about what's happening, both at the national level when it comes to midterm elections, as well as in the state of Minnesota. So you are in for a treat. Please sit back, relax, and listen to this episode. So I am super, super excited to have on the podcast a dear friend of mine. Um, a fraternity brother of mine. I've been re- really leaning on the shield actually for this series. Shout out to the Minify Basic Fraternity Incorporated. Um, but just a good friend of mine. Um, and he is a dynamic uh, political strategist, um, community leader, national leader. You are going to be in for a treat for this episode. We have Mr. Ron Harris here at the revival. Thank you for being here, Ron. It's super good to be here. I appreciate the uh, invitation. Thank you. So let me just give you a little bit of his biography, just so you know who we're talking with today. So Ron Harris is currently the chief resilience officer for the city of Minneapolis. And in his over decades career in politics and government, he has worked for officials such as former U.S. Senator Al Franken and former Minneapolis City Council President Lisa Bender. Um, He is also the Midwest Caucus Chair, correct? The Midwest Caucus Chair for the Democratic National Committee. And like I said, he is a Sigma. (laughs) And he is also an alumni of the New Leaders Council of Main Vice Party of that network. And he 
awesome. A preacher's kid. His father is actually pretty awesome, y'all. We love us some Paul Robson out here. <laughs> so he's a stepson to a pastor. Most importantly, he is just, um, he's so passionate about his work, serving his community, serving this country, um, really being able to serve from a place of optimism and hope. That's what I really love about Ron. So I really think this is going to be a great conversation. Um, and there's just so much on the right horizon for Ron. So you see him now, if you see him in the White House, you know, just say that you, we discovered him here on the revival. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so um, Ron, uh, thank you for being here. And um, as we get started, I just want to just center us, you know, as you know, we're um, talking about the intersections of faith, justice. We're talking about the midterm elections, this series. And I just want, um, you to answer the question, how does your faith motivate you to pursue a just and free world? Wow, I love that. I love that opening question. And, and, and thanks again for having me on the podcast. Um, and, and that introduction that you gave, I'm going to have to uh, slide you a 20 to introduce me at the other speaking opportunities that I get for uh, for this work. Um, you know, we think about, for me, at least when I think about how faith motivates me to pursue uh, a just and free world, I've always been inspired by uh, the verse in Micah, Micah 6, 8, where he says, you know, quote, he has told you mankind what is good. What does the Lord require from you except to carry out justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Um, and I think it's it's that simple, right? That that God doesn't really ask us for much except to really do those things. Um, and everything kind of uh, trickles from there. And when I think about my own faith and I think about even the, the, the text, the Bible, God is always advocating for the little guy always advocating for the sick, the downtrodden, the forgotten about, the the maligned and the marginalized. Um, and I can't think really of a higher calling than to use our voices to fight injustice. And when it comes to Black folks, we as a people, we've always found our resilience in one another. And we found our resilience in community. We found our resilience in church or in advocacy or in ingenuity and in fighting back both inside the system and outside of it. And ultimately, for me, faith and uh, we talked about community earlier, faith and community are connected for me. Um, we talk a lot about what it takes, for example, to heal a community. But we actually never talk about the fact that being in communion is actually healing in and of itself. Or put differently, we, we heal ourselves by being in community or in communion with each other. And so uh, when I think about all those things, that's really how my faith informs my practice and my politics. Um, others think that faith somehow gets in the way of politics, but I wouldn't be able to do this work without it. I wouldn't be able to do this work without the idea of things uh, being better than what they are today and me having a calling and helping to facilitate at least a small part of, of that work. That is so beautiful. Thank you so much for that, Ron. And just being able to talk to how um, part of our healing is our community care. We talk a lot about self-care, we talk a lot about how we need to focus on healing ourselves, and that is definitely important. But you're right, like God intended for us to be in community, right? He created us for belonging, and so much of what He has for us in a season of thriving is reliance on our community and being able to ensure that we are doing our part to ensure that everybody in our community um, is in a place of abundance and not of lack. And so I just love that you had talked about that. Thank you so much, Ron. Right. And we, you know, God, God didn't put us here to, to, to be scarce, right. Or to be isolated right. ourselves. Um, and you know how it feels when you're back in community after you've been gone for a minute or when you're back home, when you've been gone for a minute, 
uh, that is a heal that is a healing energy that um, we need to capture and 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 uh, scale up and scale out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, that's the work. So uh, before we get into the meat of our conversation, I would love for you to talk a little bit about your current work. Um, So I mentioned that you are the chief resilience officer for the city of Minneapolis. And I I feel like people are probably thinking like, okay, so what is a chief resilience officer does? I know what a CEO is, a COO, maybe, you know, other C-suite levels, but like, what is a chief resilience officer? What's that about? (laughs) I love it. Listen, I get that question uh, 100% of the time when I bring up the fact that I'm a chief resilience officer and, and I'll make the long story kind of short. Um, and my role is chief resilience officer or CRO. I serve as the city's, uh, Minneapolis City Hall, our point person on building resilience and leading our efforts to build long-term resilience. Um, when we, you know, when we talk about resilience for our purposes, resilience really means um, the capacity of our cities to function so that people living and working in cities, particularly our poor and our vulnerable folks, um, survive, adapt, and thrive no matter what stress or what shocks that they encounter. So when we talk about stress, what we mean by stress is these chronic conditions that weaken the fabric of a society or a city over time. In Minneapolis, that those stresses could be insufficient supply of affordable housing, uh, long-term systemic inequity, uh, aging infrastructure. And then when we talk about shocks, these are more time-bound, short-term acute events that significantly impact the city. So for our purposes, that tornado that, you know, impacted North Minneapolis over a decade ago, um, flash flooding, civil unrest due to police-involved shootings, a 35W bridge collapse, all of these things are shocks and their stresses. And what my job is, is to lead our city in developing a strategy for how we mitigate those things and not just bounce back from those impacts, but bounce forward is my push. So how can we be better as a city as a result of the challenges that we experience? Um, and so what that looks like day to day is, you know, of course, I'm leading um, development of a strategy and then, you know, leading the implementation of that work. I do a lot of strategic advising and coaching and consulting of city staff on how to make projects or programs uh, more resilient long term, um, sharing information and studies and data and frameworks and tools and also spending a lot of time raising money to uh, support community-led efforts. Uh, One thing that when George Floyd was murdered, for example, the rest of the country saw the the, the, the unrest and they saw the rioting and they saw the burning. But what they didn't see was the way that community came together with very little resources and shared those resources with each other to, to keep themselves supported and safe. What they didn't talk about was the fact that folks organized their own ambulatory services because 911 couldn't get into the neighborhoods because of all uh, all the unrest and some of the chaos. What they didn't talk about were how we looked after our elderly and our young people and made sure that they had rides to 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 to, uh, to to the pharmacy to get their medicines and rides and things like that to make sure they can get around the city. What my job is is how do we capture that ingenuity and capture that what I would call adaptive capacity and scale that up. So if they were able to do all of that without being invested in without having uh, resources put into the community, what would happen if we were investing in those ways during non-emergency times, right? That's part of my work. How do we figure those things out? Thank you so much for that, Ron. I was just, my mind was percolating. That was amazing. And I just think about the fact that, you know, you have spent a good amount of time in government. I spent a brief period in government. And from my assessment, working in government, so many of the things that you are talking about, like being able to adapt quickly, being able to 
um, do particular things in more of a nimble way to, to boost resiliency. A lot of those kind of rhythms are very antithetical to the way government works. Like government is very static, it's slow, um, it's built to not have to like, to not be nimble to change a lot because like it's supposed to be this like enduring institution that people it shouldn't be super movable. So like how do you navigate like those kind of um, natural tensions that come up in your work of like trying to make the city a more resilient um, city through embracing some of these maybe rhythms that city government or most governments just are not apt to doing? That's a really good question. And it's, um, that's a really great question. And part of the challenge is um, getting folks to see that even though resilience is something that might be hard to measure, right? When you're in government, you're always looking at how we measure this, looking at the numbers, looking at the spreadsheets, right? It's like, well, wait a minute. We're putting a value on things that are hard to measure, like trust in government, right? We cannot be a resilient city without our community trusting our government. They're not going to trust our government unless we're operating in the in the ways that reflect their desires and are uh, creating safety nets and things like that, or things like social cohesion, right? The most cohesive communities tend to be the most resilient communities, right? So we talk about again the civil civil unrest after George Floyd's murder. The reason why so many communities were able to to uh, rebound and take care of each other were because of that level of cohesiveness. And so, for me. I've just reconciled with the fact that a role like this is a naturally disruptive role in government, right? It, it does not exist to facilitate the status quo. It exists to analyze the status quo and then uh, point for opportunities to do things slightly different, even if it's not radically different. Uh, it's my belief that if we adjust things slightly in the short term, the long-term trajectory is uh, could be a powerful thing. You know, I think about the fact that, you know, Take, for example, um, let's say two airplanes are leaving L.A. at the same time and one is headed to New York. If you take the other one and you shift it just a couple of degrees uh, uh, east, that, that other plane is going to end up somewhere in Delaware or something like that. Right. Just a couple of degrees. And so that's how I, that's how I reconcile. It's like, OK, we might not be able to make the biggest impacts today, but if we adjust and shift to do our work a little bit more uh, in a resilient fashion day to day, we're going to get to where we want to get to long term. Um, the quickest way to get some of these things done is to share that by investing in resilience, we actually save money as a government. We spend less resources on certain projects. We're sharing data and uh, cross-collaborating on efforts, right? We're creating intentional redundancy, not uh, redundancy that comes by lack of planning. Um, and people start to get bought in when they see that, oh yeah, we're gonna save a lot of money. Uh, we're going to build up the agency and, and autonomy of our community. So we're gonna make sure that they have a lot more ability to make choice, um, but it's a you know it's a work in progress, and I'm grateful to have a background as an organizer to be able to identify self-interest and to uh, continue to work with our leaders to shift their thinking a little bit um, and, and and build for the long term. Absolutely, that is great. Thank you so much for that, Ron. And it's so great to hear you describe your role as naturally disruptive to these systems, um, and that there's so many ways that that can show up being disruptive to the status quo is not always looking like one particular way, but you can disrupt from the inside. I know we have had plenty of conversations over years about the inside outside strategy, right. um, but knowing that there's there's entire strategy in mind on how to be able to disrupt to move things forward. 
Um, so thank you for that. Um, so you mentioned that you have career background as an organizer, and that's how I got to get to know you um, and been able to see your trajectory up until now. And so um, we'll love to kind of switch gears. Um, so I know that part of your work has also been, you have been a very active um, political organizer, community organizer. You have done a lot of work primarily in the Democratic Party, um, and you have been able to um, do a lot of work both within the state of Minnesota, but also nationally throughout the Democratic Party and politics. So you know some stuff. You know some stuff. <laughs> and so I would really love, as we're about to like, really get into what's at stake in the 2022 midterm elections, I just want you to talk a little bit more about that experience and um, in politics and some of your biggest insights about what's possible in the political arena. No, oh, I love that question. Um, yeah, so I, I have experience over the years in campaigns, in government, uh, working in policy, community organizing, um, and you know the national party work. And in some of these roles, I've had the opportunity to travel the country and support candidates up and down the ballot. Um, raising resources and shifting the resources to campaigns that may not have a, a leg up as it relates to uh, funds and things like that, identifying leaders to run for office, right, and, and identifying what their self-interest is and and uh, helping them discover their own power and to see that they can actually uh, see themselves in this kind of work. Um, and I've worked really hard to um, ultimately in politics so that people can see themselves in our policies or see themselves in our leaders or see themselves in how we go about the business. Um, and then in my role as uh, chair of the Midwest Caucus at the DNC, that really positions me to, again, uh, spend a lot of time out of state, uh, just learning from a lot of folks and how they've led in this work, uh, picking up on the polling and picking up on campaign strategies. And um, I've also done a lot of consulting with strategic messaging and all sorts of stuff. I'll say all that to say, um, being exposed to all those spaces has been a, a blessing. It's been a gift in terms of really broadening my perspective on what the world actually is. And uh, I tell folks all the time, I really want to operate in the world that is on the way to creating the world that should be. And politics is a really great primer, a really great exposure to how things are. It doesn't mean that we're satisfied with how things are. It just means that we are sober-minded and realistic about what they are. And then our jobs are to close the gap between what is and what could be. Um, so the insights I think that I've got gathered from so much of this work, um, first and foremost, for me in politics, um, I believe that anything is possible, right? And not in a, in a Pollyannish way, but uh, um, there's so much power in our politics. Power, uh, politics is all about making decisions about power, essentially. And uh, it's so much about choice. And when I think about the power of choice, right, the thing that separates us as humans really from just about anything else is our ability to choose. And if that's what makes us human, then taking away our choice is dehumanizing. And if we're going to rehumanize a people, we then give them choice back. And so I, I see politics as an opportunity to rehumanize other folks, uh, to rehumanize our communities. Um, and I see it as like the most powerful vehicle to improve people's lives. Just about everything that we do is impacted by political decisions. The air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the, uh, the the price of our homes, the price of our goods. There's so many things that are impacted by politics. And for me, um, 
I want to inspire folks to not just be on the receiving end of our politics, but to take some role in shaping what that looks like. Shaping what it looks like could, could take the form of voting. It could take the form of some one-to-one -one conversations. It could take the form of calling your elected officials. It could take the form of just learning about what's happening so that we can contribute to a, a much broader uh, dialogue uh, in terms of shaping the direction of our country. Um, and ultimately, what I've learned in, in politics is it's, a, it's not a spectator sport. I think Paul Wellstone said that democracy is not a spectator sport. Um, and I'm not saying that the things that we experience, the negative things that we experience are the fault of, of us who don't participate. I'm saying that in order for us to increase the probability that we get the things that we want, participating certainly has to be a part of that math. It has to be a part of the equation. Uh, voting alone is not going to save us. However, not voting ain't going to get us there. Voting has to be a part of a larger package of offering a larger tool belt, if you will, um, in our efforts to uh, bring about change. And so really to tie that up in a bow, politics has been for me an opportunity to learn a whole lot about a whole lot because it touches so many things. And also uh, an opportunity to be inspired by people and how they approach building power through electoral politics and things like that. Wow, thank you so much, Ron. I'm sitting with, with, your, um, with your thoughts about how this is a space where we can rehumanize. Yes. So many ways politics is used to dehumanize. Right. Um, but how can we shift the landscape? How can we shift our approach, the work to actually get back to how politics was just really engaging in the public good, the greater good? How can we get back to uh, not get away from dehumanizing again? That's rehumanizing. That's something I'm definitely going to be sitting with. So thank you for that thought. Of, of scarcity, right? Yeah. It comes from the place of it not being enough, uh, resources not being enough, power not being enough, access not being enough, et cetera, et cetera. And it's one of the reasons why faith should not be separate from how we make our decisions. I firmly believe in the separation of church and state, absolutely. But as an individual, my faith guides how I see these things operate. And my faith doesn't tell me that uh, we have to opt into a scarce mindset or a deficit mindset. My faith tells me that, no, uh, uh, we are the head, not the tail, right? Like that, that, is, that is who we are. And we weren't put on this planet to be in scarcity. We, we were put here to experience abundance. And if we're not experiencing abundance, then we have some course correction to do. And I, and I see politics as a vehicle to do that course correction and remind people that there actually is enough for all of us. The reason why we, we aren't experiencing that because some people have a whole lot more than everybody else. And we can shift some of that to ensure that um, at minimum, people can have their basic needs met at minimum. And I don't think that's too much to ask for. Yes, absolutely. Oh, this is going to be so great. <laughs> it already is. Okay, so um, the topic of the hour, we are in the midst of the 2022 uh, midterm election season. Folks are going to hear this episode um, several yes. weeks after we record it, but we're still in the midst of it. Um, and I think you have some thoughts about it, right? I think you have some, some mm -hmm. smart things to say. Um, and I would love for us to talk uh, first and foremost about what's happening in the national landscape. Um, what is happening? What are the major things affecting this election season? What are you? What are your thoughts on 
what are potentially the top issues, Mulvane voters? What is specific about 2022 midterm election season at national level that we really need to be paying attention to right now? I love this. Um, First, you know, when we think about a political landscape, our political landscape is is really just a, a reflection of our national moods. It's a reflection about how people are feeling. And oftentimes we we try to take uh, or we try to analyze our uh, political landscape through these very logical and very rational perspectives. And as much as we think that we're logical and rational beings, we're just not. We are, we are very emotional beings and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a positive. Again, it's one of the things that separates us from other species. And uh, if we pay closer attention to our national mood, right, we'll be able to, I think, draw better inferences as it relates to our politics. And so, I mean, that's the first piece. Um, when you look at the uh, the, how, the, the the national House and the Senate, for example, federal House and the Senate, um, Democrats have the slimmest of margins. Uh, in the Senate, it's 50-50, with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris often being the 51st vote, the tie-breaking vote, which means that there is literally no room for error in, in the Senate, right? And then the House has what, a six, seven seat majority. So that, I mean, that's about the same thing, right? There's no room for error. And the thing about the Democratic Party, one of the things that I appreciate most about it is that we approach things from a uh, broad tent perspective. We have a very wide tent. And having a very wide tent means that there's a lot across the spectrum that we have to pay attention to and cater to and reflect as part of our constituency, as part of our base. So that means like big bills like, you know, Joe Biden's, um, uh, build, President Biden's Build Back Better agenda, for example, right? The domestic policy tax and climate bill, um, even though that had a very large swath of support within not only the Democratic Party, but the country, based on our individual senators, it, it got torn apart, right? Um, however, they recently just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a phenomenal piece of legislation. It is the largest investment in uh, climate, uh, combating climate change this country's ever taken. It allows uh, Medicare recipients to negotiate uh, prescription drug prices with the pharmaceutical companies. It caps the amount that seniors have to pay for uh, many of their medications. Uh, it has all these tax credits for electric vehicles. There, the, it uh, introduces a 15% corporate tax. But there are so many things about this domestic piece of policy that are uh, pretty phenomenal. Because these things were passed, about a month ago, you would argue that, man, Democrats are going to get their butts kicked in November. But in the last three weeks with that bill passed, um, some protections for our veterans, uh, the production of semiconductor chips, which are which is literally in any piece of elect electronic equipment that we have, phones, iPads, et cetera. Because of passing those things, Democrats actually have a shot of gaining in the Senate and possibly keeping the House or if losing the House, it'll be by just a handful of uh of seats. That is phenomenal because traditionally in the first midterm after a new president's year, right? New president's term, um, his or her party loses a lot of seats because people are riding the high of the coming into the administration. And then after a year and a half of decisions, naturally you kind of regress to the mean. And we, we often see the opposing party gain seats in that election. We might be able to blunt that this time, which makes this very, very interesting. And so we talk about some of the issues. Um, one thing that makes this cycle so interesting is the decision by the Supreme Court to 
essentially, not essentially, but get rid of Roe v. Wade. That has driven so many folks to register and so many folks to vote. Um, and I think that they, they awakened the sleeping bear when they made that decision. So that's one thing. Um, I think people, I think the economy is getting better and gas prices are, are lowering and inflation is starting to curb. And so as people feel better about their pocketbooks and they feel better about the price of their goods, they tend to vote for the, uh, the party that's in charge because they associate that leadership with the results of their experience. Thank you for that. Um, that's so interesting, right? Cause I, I'm not gonna lie. I was like, man, I'm a little pessimistic about this election season, you know? <laughs> so gonna be yeah. um, I'm, not, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna lie about that. It's still gonna be an uphill battle, but there's, there's a shot, there's a chance. And there's some good things that we can talk to voters about at the doors. There are things that we can point to that will demonstrably impact people in a tangible way. Um, and then, yeah, I think that uh, as a result of those things, people are starting to see, especially after 2020 and 2016, just how important their vote is and just how close we are to our democracy looking radically different than it does even today. And that's not fear mongering, but that's just being realistic that there are folks out here who are denying the results of elections uh, with no evidence whatsoever. And they'll say things like, oh, President Trump, uh, it was rigged. He, he won the election and they'll be on the same ballot and they won their election. I'm like, wait a minute. So that race was rigged, but yours was not. It makes no sense. Um, and we have people like that in charge. It uh, positions our democracy to uh, be impacted in a significantly negative way. And I think people understand that. And I think a lot of us are getting better at talking to people about those impacts. And as a result, I think that we're going to see a higher turnout in the midterms than we're accustomed to seeing. Sounds good. Okay. Okay. I have a couple of other questions kind of related to the national landscape that I want to pick your brain about. One of them is about, um, so we saw this summer um, kind of this repudiation of uh, kind of how Trumpism is still kind of really having a hold of the Republican Party in the race with Liz Cheney and mm. just that entire saga of um, her life since January 6th has been very fascinating to, um, to observe. And I'm just wondering, um, obviously you're situated in, in one particular party, but like from your landscape, how is the effect of uh, Trumpism in particular um, going to show up, you think, in this midterm election? I thought that was pretty shocking, a little shocking to see the margins in particular in her race in their primary. But yeah, we'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that in particular. Yes. Uh, you know, to be completely honest, um, unfortunately, Trumpism isn't going away. Trumpism has become the standard for the Republican Party. Um, at their convention in 2020, their national convention, they didn't pass a party platform, which is like the core business of a convention. Their party platform said something to the effect of whatever President Trump wants. That's not a, it's not a democracy, right? That's not, that's not a, a, a group of folks who see that uh, collectively we create the best of America. They see it as one person does that. and. It's, it, it, it scares me because it feels like the more radical uh, folks are as it relates to Trumpism, the more popular they become. 
So now you start to see people name calling all over the place because their fundraising numbers go up when they do that. Now you have people who know in their heart of hearts, they know that the election was not rigged. They know that this man lost in 2020. And yet, because their supporters don't believe so, and they know they get a lot of support by saying these things, they continue to do it and they'll ride that wave. We have people running for secretary of state, right? That That's, that's the role of essentially managing our elections in our states, right? Uh, making sure that they're, they're fully funded and that we have the right equipment and all these other things. They have people who deny the results of the 2020 election who are running for seats that manage and control elections. And what that means is that they don't like the outcome. They're finding ways to sue and to uh, essentially uh, overturn the results of free and fair elections. And that should scare everybody. And so when you look at Liz Cheney's race, for example, we knew that she was actually going get, to get, get beat pretty bad because she was one of the lone Republicans to stand up for what's right. And if you get cut at the legs for standing up for a clear injustice, uh, I think that's, that was a sacrifice she was willing to make. And I think that she's recognizing that she gained a lot of support by um, taking on that leadership. The problem is that there are very few voices within that party who are willing to take that leadership and, and use their voices to call out a very clear injustice solely because they benefit directly from that injustice. And so I think as these candidates continue to get rewarded at the ballot box and rewarded in their fundraising numbers for being outlandish and for outright lying and for uh, being rather obtuse in their approach to politics, we're gonna see more and more of this. The thing that scares me the most out of any of this stuff that is that Trump was very clearly a demagogue, very clearly a megalomaniac, very clearly did not have the interests of Americans, the best interests of Americans at his heart. He had the best interests of his wallet in his back pocket, right? That was his thing. And he tripped over himself the entire time he was in office. He People forget he had a united Republican House, Republican Senate, and the White House for the first two years of his presidency and wasn't able to pass pretty much anything, right? What scares me is that the next demagogue, the next megalomaniac, right? The next, the, the next authoritarian, is going to be way smarter and way more surgical than Donald Trump was, and if and if we allow that to get in our uh, uh, elect, if we allow someone like that to get elected, we're in, a, we're in for a world of trouble. We're in for a world of trouble, and so every single election counts. We say this all the time. Uh, you know, this is the most important election of our lifetime. And I think that's going to be true with every subsequent election that we have mm-hmm. until we rid our politics from this just really toxic and pervasive uh, Trumpism um, sentiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I just, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, we have to be much more vigilant. We just have to be much more vigilant and we can't, um, we can't sit, we can't sit on the sidelines because we, we saw how easily he was able to sway a nation yes. and even, and to mobilize. It was really about mobilizing a sleeping giant is what he was able to do. Um, so we have to be even more vigilant that we have to keep showing up because we can't allow that sleeping giant to continue to um, really ease its way into our, our our government and our structure and our leadership in a way that's going to be absolutely detrimental to our country. So we also not only do we have to tap into the real fears of, of what's mm-hmm. going on, we have to actually name it, but we also have to uh, inspire people that. Yes. By voting, by participating, we are actually developing the building blocks of progress, that we actually have a vision and a dream that we aspire to, and our politics are a way of us getting there. 
right? So if we're looking at these elections, right, we can look at it and say, you know what, Trumpism is in the way of us aspiring to our, our, our best visions and our best lives for ourselves. Let's remove that obstacle through our elections so that we can clear more of a path for us to then build upon our, our dreams and our aspirations, right? It can't solely be, you know, fear mongering and, and identifying like what's at stake. We definitely have to level set and be clear about what's at stake, but we also have to level set and be clear about what's possible. And the what's possible part of politics is what gets me excited, right? The opportunity to create some new things, right? To get in new leaders, to, to advance new ideas, to uh, uh, position people to live their best lives. Um, so let's do the work, clear, clear the roadway for us to be able to do that. You know, you're absolutely right. There's one thing that I've learned about guys that um, he can use anything. He can use anything for good. And if there's one thing that I have witnessed um, since the Trump era, it's just, it has birthed, it has put so much fire in leaders, new leaders to step up and to say, okay, this is time for me to start running for office. It's time for me to start organizing. It's time for me to start getting active. And it has actually served to build our coalitions and expand our coalitions even greater. So I definitely agree with you. So um, we talked a lot about the national landscape, um, but you know a lot about what's happening here in the state of Minnesota. And I know that this particular election season is unique among others that we see at the state level because of like all the seats are up, <laughs> all the seats are up. And we also have some very key races as well at the local level. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit more about Minnesota's election season in particular and um, what we really need to be tracking for Minnesota elections. Yes, so I'll start with the federal and then and then make my way down. So, you know, we have, a, a, you know, all of our federal seats, except for our U.S. senators, are up for uh, re-election this year. And we have a lot of close seats. Um, Angie Craig's seat in CD2, right, the 2nd Congressional District, is the uh, top race in the country. It is the most watched race. It is projected to have the most spending on both sides. Um, Democrats see this seat as integral to keeping the majority. Republicans can't get the majority without it. And so it just elevates the importance of that of that seat. And so we should definitely pay attention to that. Uh, Andrew Craig has um, been a really great member of Congress. Um, she came from the private sector. Um, uh, one of the one of the first um, out uh, um, women in Congress. And um, we definitely need to make sure that we, we retain that seat. In the first congressional district, which is held currently by a Republican, the uh, former congressman there um, actually passed away from cancer, um, Jim Hagendorn, uh, what, sometime last year, I think. And uh, his wife is the, the, the former chair of the Minnesota Republican Party. And so they were all in disarray and we they just had a special election to fill the remaining of this term. So really, you know, a four, remain uh, to, um, excuse me, uh, occupy the last four months of his term. And what we saw in that race was, I think Trump won that district by like 10 points. And uh, Democrats, uh, we didn't win that election, but it was within a couple of points, which is an indicator that this seat is probably up for grabs um, because we had that level of turnout in a primary. So those are two kind of federal elections we want to pay attention to. The third is um, um, CD5. Now we know CD5 is going to go Democratic. However, CD5 is incredibly important to running up the score of our voters so that we win the statewide races. 
um, in 2020, for example, Joe Biden got more votes in Hennepin County than Donald Trump got statewide. So Hennepin County, our cities are integral to ensuring that we reelect uh, Governor Walls and Lieutenant Governor Flanagan, our Attorney General, Keith Ellison, right? Our uh, Secretary of State, Steve Simon, and our State Auditor, Julie, Julie Blaha. Um, if that's that high of a concentration within our cities, again, the role of our of our inner city um, members of Congress is to run up the score so that the rest of our electeds can continue uh, serving. Um, another piece to consider too is we're going to have the smallest amount of Latino elected officials in over a decade. Um, some are leaving due to retirement. Some are leaving due to redistricting, right? Um, and so, folks, we have to really pay attention to not losing on the losing the progress that we have worked so hard to achieve. It's one thing to get there. It's another thing to keep it and build upon it. And so, again, elections are opportunities to build upon our aspirations, not get comfortable with, um, with what we achieved. I'm super excited because in our state Senate, right now uh, it's in Republican hands. We have a shot at winning it back. Um, so if we keep Governor Walls, win back the Senate and keep the House, we're going to be able to pass things like recreational marijuana, for example. We're going to be able to pass things like paid sick paid sick time protections and expand um, uh, maternal, maternity leave and paternity leave and things like that. Um, and I'm also excited because we will elect uh, three Black women to the Minnesota Senate. And that is amazing because there ne there's never been one, never a single Black woman in the Minnesota Senate. And it's ridiculous that it's taken this long to get here, but I'm excited about the folks who are running and uh, the opportunity for them to lead. Uh, Claire Verbetten in St. Paul, and, and I think some of her district touches Roseville. Uh, Aaron McQuaid, one of my closest friends down in Apple Valley, and uh, and uh, Zainab Mohammed in Minneapolis um, are amazing leaders and are going to represent us really well. And yeah, those are some of the things to pay attention to in the state. Awesome. Wow. I'm so glad that you actually walked us through what's happening at the congressional level, um, especially if folks are living in the Twin Cities. We often think about, oh, OK, well, in, in Congressional District 5, which is represented Ilhan Omar's district, well, she's going to win. We don't need to think about that. But um, it is just even talking about the strategy of being able to show up for multiple races and how everybody is kind of working together to make sure that turnout is really strong is super duper important. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about the state constitutional races too. Um, what's going on with the governor's seat? Like what's going on with, I, we're hearing a lot particularly around the governor's race um, as well as the attorney general's race. Um, and what are some of the key things that are uh, impacting that uh, those races? Yes, absolutely. Um, what's impacting those races are things that are also uh, we're seeing are impacting the country. People's feelings about COVID nineteen and the efforts that were taken to uh, turn down the you know turn down the dial and to slow the spread and to protect folks, people are really upset about that, right? Um, on the I would I would say on the conservative end, um, policing is still a very hot button issue. I find it fascinating that, you know, folks are like, these are defund the police candidates and, and all these things. And it's like, well, one, nobody defunded the police. Matter of fact, Minneapolis Police Department has increased their budgets 
every year since I've since I've worked there, right, or pretty close to it. So there was no defunding, but it was it, it was leveraged as a as a wedge issue, and it still is being leveraged in that way, even though um, a lot of these races have nothing to do with with law enforcement directly. But it's still a talking point. Um, I think what's in the governor's favor and I think in Democrats' favor is, again, in Minnesota, our strong protections for women's access to abortion and, and health care. Um, we're one of only a couple in the states in the Midwest that have pretty much full protections for, for that right, for that health care choice. And um, again, we're going to see, I think, a higher voter turnout for that. But, you know, again, our statewide is going to be punished a little bit in uh, parts of the state for taking those positions. Um, especially the attorney general, who was pretty forceful in uh, uh, protecting those rights, you know. Um, so the race is going to be close. Um, he, you know, he also he was the one who, who led the conviction of Derek Chauvin, right? And a lot of people are going to be supportive of that solely because of uh, of the really great job that that had happened there. Um, the Secretary of State's race is really important because while Looking at the polling, um, I'm not super concerned that that race is in jeopardy. We have to pay attention to it because of the power of that of that role. Again, managing our elections, making sure that they are funded, making sure that uh, you know lines are drawn fairly, and that we if we have to take a lawsuit, we're going to take a lawsuit to protect that right to vote. Right, right. Facilitating our access to the ballot box. Steve Simon has done such a really great job of expanding the access points for our ability to vote whether it's early vote hours, expanding the amount of voting locations, uh, instituting vote by mail, right? All these things helped us uh, run up the turnout in 2020 when it was physically unsafe to be able to do those things and we needed to protect that stuff. Um, so really, that, I mean, that's what's at stake. And we will, we will lose those seats if we don't show up and vote. And if we lose those seats, right, in, in Governor Walls's race, if we lose to Scott Jensen, who is a essentially a COVID denier and is a uh, elect a 2020 election denier and has said statements like uh, he will not support abortion even in the cases of rape and incest, right? I mean, this is like draconian stuff. Um, that's what's at stake. Uh, when you look at the, the person running against Keith Ellison for attorney general has never tried a court ever, is a hedge fund lawyer. Right, is an election denier. These, this, our politics has shifted from disagreements about what's best for the country and best for the state into this person is actually dangerous to be leading in our democracy. And, and, and it's sad for me to say that, but that's literally what's at stake. Um, so some of these races are going to be pretty close, but I have full faith and confidence that if we continue to do our work, um, the right folks will be elected and they'll be there to protect and advance our wishes and our aspirations. Mm -hmm. absolutely wow wow thank you thank you Ron so much it's it is a lot to take in just about what really is at stake here um but it's also a moment that we're being called into right we're calling we're being called into a space to step up to show up um to do some really critical work to like you said protect our democracy to show up for our community to advance the vision that we are um, hoping for in our country and in our state and our cities. And so as we're transitioning into um, nearing wrapping up this episode, um, obviously we are, you know, talking primarily to a Black audience um, and just thinking about 
how are we as a community, um, how should we prepare ourselves to be able to talk to our families, to talk to our friends, our neighbors, and our churches about what's at stake in this election season? Where are the resources that we can tap into? Where are the things that we need to do? Yes, I love this. You know, first, I think people get really shy about participating in politics. And the number one thing that I hear when I ask folks why they participate is they say, I don't feel like I know enough. I don't feel like I have enough information. I don't feel like I've done enough research. And what I share back with them, and I think what we need to continue to do is that number one, as humans, right? And as a, and as a communal people, and I think as black folks, as a particularly relational people, we learn best and we communicate best through story. And so I would encourage folks to figure out what their, what their story, personal story is as it relates to uh, specific issues. So instead of trying to come up with all the right facts for uh, why you are pro-choice or all the right facts for the necessity to expand our voting rights, share a story about how you've been impacted by these provisions or how, um, how, how you've benefited from whatever those laws are, those policies, or how you've been hurt by some of these things and why you want to make some of these things better. And so really, number one is, is really craft your own personal story. And it doesn't have to be something that's super whatever. It can literally be, hey, uh, I'm supporting Governor Walls. I know that Governor Walls has uh, worked really hard to <clears throat> protect our democracy and make sure that our, our rights to vote aren't being impacted. That's important to me because I think that my vote is my power. And I don't want anybody taking away my power. And so I want to make sure that we show up so that no one can take away our power. Like, that's it. People are going to be moved more by your personal experiences than they are your ability to articulate the issues or know all the facts or know any of those other things. So especially with family, friends, neighbors, and churches, um, I'd, ask, I'd ask you to consider what has shifted your politics? What has gotten you bought in? I'd venture to say it was some sort of an experience and you learned about it through some people, right, that you trust. And based on that, that, that opened up the door for participation. It'll be the exact same thing, I think, for, um, for individuals. I think as a church community, as a faith community, we need to be sober-minded about the challenge that's in front of us and also uh, realistic about the fact that we have everything, everything that we need to turn this challenge into an opportunity, that this is our chance to show what we are made of. This is our chance to show what faith looks like in practice. This is our chance to show what love looks like in public. And that, to me, is more of a reason to show up every day than I think anything else, right? Can we show the world what we're made of? Can we be a signal or a beacon to a community or to a society that uh, uh, our resilience, right, our ingenuity, our, our discipline, our persistence, so much of this is spirit-led and we are representatives, you know? Um, this is our opportunity. I think that, you know, when we're talking to people about our politics, we should talk about how our faith informs those things and talk about how our, our, our lives are impacted um, by these things. And I think um, even as a, as a church community, when I think about the, during the civil rights, for example, the church was a place of healing. The church was a place of worship. Church was also a place of strategy. Church was a place where we figured out what our tactics were in the basement, right? The church was where we said, okay, when are we going to go on the attack? What, how are we going to strategically, uh, boycott or get the attention or make some noise or get into some good trouble? We need to get back to getting into some good trouble. We need to get back to organizing in our in our places of worship and using those spaces to empower leaders and to strategize and to be a resource because 
Um, we have that power and that ability and that space to do so. Um, and finally, I think that as a, as a community, we have an opportunity to um, show service by, um, you know, identifying our downtrodden brothers and sisters who, for, who, for example, have lost their rights to vote um, due to the antiquated war on drugs or due to discriminatory policing or maybe making a mistake, right? And I believe, you know, part of my faith is, is about redemption. How can we demonstrate redemption in, in real life? How do we, how do we show that um, we are down, but we're not out and that there's always another chance, right? I, I would love for us to be an embodiment of the best of what's possible in this country. And I think that we have that. And I think that we can take the opportunity to show that in this, in this upcoming season. Wow. <laughs> I'm I oh gosh Ron thank you so much first of all I wrote down like church is a place of strategy I'm getting that tatted I'm getting that on a t-shirt I'm putting that on my whiteboard yes 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 thank you so much I, there is so much there but I think what you say is enough there is so much that we can do to tell our story there's so much that we can do to recenter in strategy but also we have everything that we need to meet this moment so thank you so much for joining us, Ron. How can people find you? How can people connect with you? We really want to make sure we're building connections here at The Revival. Absolutely. Um, best place to find me is on Twitter, at Ron Harris MN, like Minnesota abbreviated. Uh, that same um, tag is also on Insta. And uh, that's also my email, MN at gmail.com. Always down to help support, always down to talk some of this stuff through. I'm always down to speak to groups and um, train groups. And so if I can ever be helpful in your endeavors to build power in service of a larger vision, uh, just let me know. powerful conversation with Mr. Ron Harris. I'm so grateful that you were able to tune in. If you would like to continue to hear amazing content from the Revival Podcast, please look us up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and iHeartRadio, and subscribe. Subscribe. If you love this episode, please rate, review, leave a comment. We want to hear from our listeners. In addition, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Revival MN. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon for another episode of The Revival, Faith, Justice, and Culture for the Now Generation. See ya!